Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 351, and I had a conversation with Peter Melman. Peter is a producer, actor, author, it won't always be this great, hashtag me as well, a novel, and Mandela was late, TV writer, most famously for Seinfeld. He's responsible for memorable Seinfeld utterances like shrinkage, double dipping, yada, 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 sponge worthy. They're real and they're spectacular, (laughs) to name a few of the things that he's well known for. The former sports journalist cut his teeth with Howard Cassell and has written for dozens of publications, including New York Times Magazine, GQ, Esquire, and pretty much every woman's magazine you can think of. He's currently working on his new book, Parenting Tips from a Childless Man. (laughs) Okay, I had a really fantastic past week working on my new movie. The first directing, I wrote it. uh, The cast and crew were extraordinary. 35 of us moving around an incredible location, this beautiful house in Altadena, and... Wow, when, what an, my mind is blown. It was so much fun. It was super hard work, and it looks incredible. I'm so excited to put it together, and, and I'll keep you posted on everything. But wow, I just, it was, it was really great. It was really, really great. But without fail, I'm still getting the, the podcast out. <laughs> this will be the first time that I recorded, edited, and did all the stuff for the podcast in one full swoop of three-hour period. So (laughs) if you catch some errors or weird stuff, take it easy on me. It's been a big week. Check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links, heyhuman merch, and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out susanruth.com to learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors. Um, Please follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. You can find my albums on Apple Music or wherever you get your music. Most recently, uh, the record All I Ever Wanted was everything. But I'm working on new music now. I keep saying it, but I'm hoping by the end of the year I will have an EP out too. Also, please check out my Relationships and Sex show, Are We There Yet?, with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman. It's on YouTube under youtube.com slash are we there yet podcast show we also give away toys every month so it's very exciting so check it out subscribe and be a part of the revolutionary idea of being open and honest about relationships and sex rate review and subscribe to hey human podcast on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts Hey Human is ad-free, and your donations help with keeping it so. There's a contribution button on the heyhumanpodcast.com website. Feel free to use it. All right. Thank you for listening. Be well. Be kind. Be love. Take care of each other. And here we go. Peter Melman, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you. I'm glad I qualify. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you had to get through so many breakfasts before I let you on the show. <laughs> well, no, no, you know, it was a gauntlet, I'll tell you that. <laughs> it's just like it's spend time with Ike and give him bacon. That's <laughs> it was a bacon gauntlet. It was a bacon gauntlet. Well, it's good to see you. Um, thank you for being here. And I'm excited. Uh, I adore you. I think you're hilarious and wonderful and so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Let's talk about where you are from. How was your upbringing? Did you grow up in a very creative household? You know, I, I, I am tempted to say not really, but I guess in a way. I mean, I grew up in Queens, New York. And, you know, my father is an engineer and my mother worked at a school. But, you know, they did take us to show, you know, we went we left Queens, went into the city and saw shows all the time, museums. And every year we had, my parents got unbelievable great tickets for my brother and I to see Leonard Bernstein's Young People's Concert at Philharmonic Hall. I mean, we felt like, I mean, we we referred to Leonard Bernstein as Lenny. 
I mean, we were so tight with him. And I have a Hirschfeld of Leonard Bernstein right on my wall. You've got a lot of really cool art in your house. Yeah. I, uh, it's so funny that people say that because my whole philosophy of collecting is that I have no taste in art. So I basically went for, um, you know, photojournalism. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that part of your life also, just the mm -hmm. journalistic part. Were you, did you play sports as a kid? Yeah. Tons. Bas basketball? Um, you know, Little League Baseball and um, and football with my friends, and uh, then basketball completely took over. Yeah. Was it a funny household? I mean, you're Jewish, it goes without saying, but was it a funny household? Um, you know, my mom is really funny. My father is, was kind of like a very low-key guy, kind of shy, but he made great puns and things like that. Yeah, the puns were amazing, and uh, one thing I'll never forget is like when I moved out here and my parents came to visit, and um, I was, you know, playing a then cassette in my car of Linda Ronstadt singing all those Nelson Riddle songs, and my father was singing along, and my mother goes, "God, Jim, you know all the words," and my father goes, "Hey, I wasn't always married." <laughs> and that was kind of like his sense of humor. It's kind of your sense of humor too. Yeah. I, I don't know. You know, I do remember that, you know, kind of being funny was like important to me. Mm -hmm. Did you write at a young age or was that something that came later? That came much later. What were your aspirations when you were young? Well, I, I bought into the whole propaganda that I should become a doctor. I mean, you know, uh, my mom bought me a stethoscope for my eighth birthday. And in fourth grade, I actually wrote a letter to Michael DeBakey, who was like the foremost heart surgeon in the world at that time. He did the first artificial heart. And uh, the interesting thing about that is that he also perfected this surgery for, you know, to correct an like aortic aneurysms. Mm. And years later, my father had that surgery and it basically, you know, it basically added, you know, 20 years to his life. That's incredible. Yeah. You know, giving you a stethoscope could have meant that she wanted you to be a safe cracker. <laughs> yeah, if only. <laughs> the funny thing is, you know, like all those years later, I mean... You know, it, it was just like rubber tube, two rubber tubes then coming down to, and they all kind of, you know, after a while, it all kind of disintegrated and everything like that. Now, all I have left is the ear thing. You still have it. I still have the ear part, just the top. Yeah. Oh, I love that you still have it. Yeah. Yeah. Big, big family, little family. Little, just my brother, my brother and I. Do you guys get along? Yeah. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes there can be rivalry when it's same sex sibling. Oh, no. It was, you know, the funny thing is, like he was he he was like big in you know, physically big. Even in like, you know, by like ninth grade, he was pretty, you know, and I was like really short and unbelievably skinny. You know, I mean. And, um, you know, like I, so, you know, there was no like sibling rivalry there. I was just a kid brother. You know, we went to, um, we went to all these Knicks playoff games together and everything like that, you know, like rooting for the Knicks back then was like a big deal. And, um, yeah, I didn't even grow till college, but yeah, I, I think I was like five, eight when I graduated high school and then like by the middle of my sophomore year of college, I was six one. And now I'm back down to five, eight. <laughs> <laughs> Basketball is really quite a, um, a part of being a New Yorker. I feel like more than any other sport there. Yeah. It's a real, it's a real New York city game. Mm -hmm. Although, I mean, the funny thing is now it, you know, a, a lot of the great pros come from, 
everywhere. I mean, everywhere around the world, but in, you know, it, it's amazing how many players are from Seattle and Oakland and at LA. LA is like the breeding ground for NBA players now. But New York was was it back then. You know, all the great players were were New Yorkers. They grow as tall on the West Coast. Yeah. There's a lot, there's, you know, there's more there's more room. There's more space to grow. That's right. Maybe that's why I grew when I was in college. More space to grow. I mean, why not? I grew an extra inch when I was in college, which surprised me. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have the the overwhelming pressure of parents. <laughs> yeah, you're five ten. I'm six one. No. Yeah. I thought you were five ten. Mm-mm. Oh. I thought we had this conversation. Oh, maybe we just had this conversation about you being tall the first time mm-hmm. we had breakfast. Because I remember we're talking about like I'm so sick of all these girls who are five two. Remember that conversation? I did. Well, all my best friends are quite short. So I've, my whole life, my best friends along the way have, have been quite quite little. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what that's about. I think it's just opposites attract. <laughs> I We met in such a funny circumstance. I was having coffee with my friends, Joel and Russ, and you had you were walking by with Ike and I, I leapt upon your dog. <laughs> <laughs> Dogs for me are the gateway to humans, really. That was like the pleasant stranger on the street with Ike, you know, as opposed to, I probably told you this about, like this one woman was playing with Ike one day and she says to me, oh God, he's so cute. Did you adopt him? (laughs) I said, no, he's my biological dog. (laughs) And she uh, totally didn't laugh. In fact, she said, if you had ever been to a kill shelter, you wouldn't be making jokes about it. I was like, what a world. I don't belong here anymore. (laughs) Well, so you went off to college. Did you stay in New York for college? No, I went to University of Maryland. What were you into at the time? You know, pre-med lasted like one semester. And then in the second semester, I wandered into the student newspaper office I don't even remember, you know, and but I just wandered to the student newspaper office and said I'd like to write. They gave they you know, and I they assigned me an article about workers in one of the libraries trying to unionize. And I took it like dead seriously. I wrote this piece and they thought, "Wow, this is, you know, for a shitty assignment. This this is really good." And uh, I don't know. I just got totally turned on by it. Yeah. That's so interesting to me that you didn't grow up thinking about being a writer and and literally walked right through the door to it. Yeah. I, I mean, like, I always think about, you know, like, I, I see people on the street and I always wonder if, like, they have unbelievable talent to play like piano and they have no idea. Mm. Like, you know, they, they are people who have, I always wonder about people having extraordinary talents or, or any, or talent or affinity for anything and not ever realizing it. And, um, you know, I'm great. I'm grateful that I somehow figured out that I would like to write. (laughs) So your career started in journalism. Yes. And you did you immediately go into sports writing or was that something that came later? No. Well, the first job I had was at the Washington Post. And, um, you know, like at first I was like a copy aide. But, you know, I was so incompetent at that. <laughs> you know, like I would hang up on people by accident when they were filing article stories and you know, they'd be out of town. And I mean, they started calling me moon man because I seemed so spaced out about these kind of things, but they just started letting me write, which was good. You know, nothing like failing up. The funny thing is, you know, like through sports writing, I was just on the phone a couple hours ago with this guy who was at the Washington Post star when I was at the Washington post. And this is, you know, 1980. And he was just um, 
hitting me up for ten thousand dollars. <laughs> really? Yeah, for some project he's working on. You know, I always used to joke that like college is the place where you'll meet people who'll haunt you for the rest of your life. This is a little bit post college, but I still believe that. Then did you set your sights on and think that, okay, now I'm a sports writer. This is what I'm going to be doing. Cause I know you're politically involved uh, now, but was that on your, on your plate back then? Um, no. And I kind of wish it were, but I mean, you know, you know how like you look back at yourself when you're, you know, 20 or 22 and everything. And you go, you're like inevitably come to the conclusion of like, Oh God, I was such an idiot. Um, you know, like I watched all the president's men like 30 times and I don't understand. I don't to this day. I don't quite understand why, like it didn't move me in that direction because I loved, and I found it inspiring, but you know, all the president's men is not exactly inspiring you to be a sports writer. <laughs> you know, I started covering some professional sporting events and I would be interviewing people that, you know, athletes who I admired from afar, and I found myself feeling embarrassed. You know, like I would, like, you know, I'd be asking, an, you know, a pitcher who was a really intelligent guy, you know, like this famous great pitcher named Jim Palmer. I remember interviewing him and thinking, this is so silly that I'm interviewing this guy about, you know, talking to this guy about why he threw a 3 2 curveball. You know, I mean, who cares? And um, the funny thing is, I I had an interview when I moved back to New York and I got this job interview with Howard Cosell, who was like the biggest sports TV journalist of all time. I told him that story, and that's basically why he hired me, because he wanted, pe he wanted people who realized that sports was a sandbox and that. The only interesting thing about it was connecting it to the real world, you know, because people, people want sports to be their Camelot, you know, their escape, you know, and when, when sports invades the real world, you see what happens, you know, Colin Kaepernick and, you know, they go out of their minds. They go out of their minds. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I was such a sports fan and, you know, I still follow sports. My two and a half years of working for Howard Cosell really kind of synthesized me to a lot of it. What was he like? Um, incredibly funny, brilliant, crazy, insecure, but it was fascinating. You know, I mean, it was like being in the middle of the sports universe and, you know, he had a no matter how much, you know, he used to be every year, he'd be listed among the top 10 most admired and the top 10 most hated people in America. Yes, you're doing something right when you've got it, yep. when you're on both lists. And as much as people hated him, the athletes totally respected him. They always knew they'd get a fair shake and he would ask, you know, reasonable, smart questions. So um, it was fascinating being around him, you know. It really was. What do you think one of the greatest lessons you got from him was? The greatest lesson I got from him was to kind of question everything. You know, to 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 look behind what people are saying, you mm -hmm. know, or to look away from what people were saying and look at what they're doing. You know, um, and he was amazing at that. He was very perceptive and, you know, and, you know, he understood the politics of people and, and the law and, you know, all of the, so much of what you love about sports can be based in so much hypocrisy and, you know, if you want to be a, if you really enjoy being a sports fan, working for Howard Cosell was not was not the way to go. But if you really are interested in, you know, truth, <laughs> then it was great. Did you realize you were funny at an early age? I mean, growing, you said that your dad had that sort of more subtle and punny humor, and that mom was funny. But did you know you were funny? I didn't know. I I, I was like. 
amazingly unself-aware. Like, or, or I didn't focus on it. You know, like, I remember, like, even when I went to college, I mean, I'd see these kids from, like, rich towns in Long Island and think, uh, like, you know, have this vague thought about how confident they seemed, you know, especially, like, around girls and things like that. And I was like, I'm so much better at that. <laughs> you know, like, thinking that they're not funny. And I, you know, like I, that, that was when I kind of, that was probably my realization that I, that I might be funny because I remember thinking, how could she be with him? He's like, she probably never left. <laughs> it's true. Laughter is an aphrodisiac. It's certainly something that keeps, keeps the sparks going in my humble opinion. What transitioned you out of the sports journalism into the next phase of life? Uh, getting laid off. Um, that'll do it after two years at abc two and a half years at abc um i you know i worked for howard the only time i ever covered a live event you know because the show i worked on with howard cosell was a sports journalism program i never covered live event you know i never worked at a live event but for the 84 olympics howard had me working on the instant replays for boxing and um the level of corporate waste for those 84 olympics was so over the top crazy that it, by november they had to start thinking about layoffs and then on december 15th i got laid off december 15th 1984 and there was a part of me that was almost relieved. You know, like I, I felt like it was time to move on. Like, you know, writing for Howard Cosell is not exactly writing, you know, because you have to write in his voice, not yours. But um, it was really weird because, like, I went to a party that night and had the best time. And the next morning I woke up and the room was spinning. I had an inner ear virus that was probably just sitting in me and all it took was like one little life jolt and you know so for like 10 days it was like but you know it was good and then you know i was kind of like trying to figure out what was next and i you know did some job interviews and tv and stuff like that and then um I had this idea for an article and I just wrote it, this kind of humor piece. I just wrote this piece called the, we just broke up last night diet <laughs> about what happens to a guy on the five days after he's been dumped. And somehow I, I got a contact with an editor at glamor magazine. And she said, well, it's not really right for us, but you, but I'm going to send it to mademoiselle magazine no longer exists and they bought it up and wanted me to do more and more kind of stuff from a male point of view and things like that and i was like this seems like fun you know and then i just got to write for all these different magazines especially in the conde nas building which, which was a ton of magazines in there yeah and yeah. You know, like i think they're in the world trade center now but then they were in these offices, you know, like a six, seven floor building on Madison Avenue. And just riding the elevators was more fun than anything in the world because, I mean, like it was the gorgeous girl capital of the world. I mean, like all these kind of, all these kind of like rich, rich, gorgeous girls who were under, who were underpaid, but they were like, all in like leather mini skirts and you know like it was crazy it was and it was so much fun you know and i go i'd go from i wrote a lot for gq and then you know like i one editor would go to another magazine and i'd get in there you know i'd write for self magazine and mademoiselle and glamour and and um it was just really fun is there an archive somewhere with all your articles do you keep that um, I have most of them. I, you know, either, uh, I, I really got to organize this. I really got to start organizing it. 
because I have like all these pot magazines that piled up, you know, in drawers and stuff like that. Ah, uh, so much I never get around to. Yeah. Life life is like that. Yeah. How did Seinfeld happen? One of the articles I wrote in which was published in October of 1988 was a piece I wrote in the New York Times magazine. They used to have a column called About Men, where, you know, and it was never funny. And it was always like the subjects were like my favorite baseball men, you know, I mean, you know, just like, whoop. I wrote about this day where I just had a breakup with a girl who I had been with for two years and she was at Yale Business School. And I was going up there every weekend, you know, and and then we broke up and I had, um, you know, like I, I, I was at kind of a loss for planning a solo weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I walked out on the street and I saw this um, guy who I thought was a broadcaster on ABC. But when I got close, it wasn't him. And my friends and I were such great celebrity spot spotters in New York that I decided, you know what, I'll I'll just walk around the city till I spot a celebrity and then I'll go home. That would be my day. And the that was the skeleton of the story. And off that there were all these digressions about life and love in New York. Very it the piece was in the you know, was in the New York Times. When I, I the day it came out. I went out, I was like, in the morning, I went out to breakfast with some friends, and then we did some things around the city. And when I got home, I had like 70 messages on my answering machine, mostly from strangers. And um, so anyway, like a year later, I felt like a change. And I really had such a good time in LA during the Olympics that I decided to, you know, just change my life up and move to LA. And about, you know, about a year, more than a year into my time in LA, I bumped into Larry David, who I had met in New York, I think twice. And we were just talking. And then he said, you know, I got this, I'm doing this little TV show with Jerry Seinfeld. Maybe you could, uh, you know, write a script for us. And he asked me for a writing sample, which, I later found out he was asking several people the same, you know, he was hitting up the same, you know, but I didn't have a script. So I gave him that article from the New York times and he passed it on to Jerry and Jerry was kind of like everybody else was turning in scripts and he wasn't like impressed with any of them, but he just loved my article. So I got a chance to write a script and uh, I really didn't know what I was doing, but, um, but I did it and it came out. Okay. And I got hired. And next thing you know, I was loaded. <laughs> it's so bonkers to think that, that a casual conversation and that you weren't afraid to say, well, I've never written a script, so I can't do that. That you were like, well, here's my writing. And the fact that that was a show uh, centered around everyday life in New York it, yeah. it seems quite logical that that article would be the the thing that sparked interest. Yeah. I didn't actually say to him, I've never written the script. He asked for a writing sample and I just gave him that. I didn't say sure. that. I never wrote no, I can't. I can't imagine you would say that. But I'm saying internally that you didn't have the dialogue with yourself that said, oh, I can't do this because I've never done this thing. You didn't. Right. Yeah. You just kept going forward is impressive. A lot of people wouldn't do that. A lot of people would say, Oh, I, I'm not right for that. Cause I've never done this thing. And that's scary. But you just said, yeah. yep, here you go. Here's some of my writing. I'll tell you that, you know, when I went in the first time to meet with them, you know, they gave me three, they gave me tapes of the, like the three episodes at that point that they had ever shot. And I remember watching them and, and like all of a sudden I was nervous. Like, I, was, you know, at first I was thinking, oh, I'll write a script. I'll get paid, you know, like really good money. And then I'll go back to writing magazines. Then I see the three episodes and I'm like, 
oh my God, I really like this. You know, like then I started getting like a little nervous. <laughs> but um, yeah, I kind of dove in. The thing with Seinfeld that always struck me is there's these this group of people that never they never learn anything. They never get better. They just are terrible all the way through to the end. And it's it's so interesting because so many shows, you know, want an arc that people get redemption. And they don't, there's not a lot of redemption around their, the, the main cast of characters. They're so lovable. That must have been a ball to write yeah. that. Well, as you've probably heard before, you know, the philosophy of the show was no hugging, no learning. <laughs> I didn't know that, but that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. um, it was so much fun. You know, like it was just, it was just so much fun to just focus on what was funny and not what was, you know, safe or right or, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I was just, I told you that I've been writing this book called Parenting Tips from a Childless Man. And I was just writing about like, you know, if you're about being, you're being worried that your child is like really unattractive. And, you know, I wrote the episode that included the storyline about the ugly baby. And, um, yeah, like, I remember, like, I didn't have any conscience about people saying, oh, my God, I'm in that situation. And, you know, it was just funny. So you could just go with it, you know. Mm-hmm. It was very liberating to just be funny without like really worrying about any ramifications. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I get that completely. It was a definitely a different era intelligent. The thing is, is the, the truth of the matter is that most human beings don't evolve. They don't figure shit out. They don't, re- they don't get redemption. They make the same stupid mistakes over and over again. We're all, we're all a disaster for the most part. And so I think that's what made that show so delightful is because as much as we'd like to think we're the good guy that's going to figure everything out and have everything wonderful happen. Truth of the matter, that's just not real life. We probably won't figure it out. We're probably going to be making the same dumbass decisions and they just have different hats on the different people and whatnot. Probably. I always think that like, you know, like what, you know, especially like when you're in your twenties, you look you could look back every two years and think, oh my God, I was such an idiot when I was 24. And then when you're 28, you look back, oh my God, I was such an idiot when I was 26. And you know, like when do you ever catch up with yourself? Right. For sure. And some people never do, and some people at least come close. Yeah. Is it if you could step outside of yourself and think about, is it weird to think that? You created like get out and the uh, yada 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 and spongeworthy and she, all these iconic zeitgeist that the those are things that will be in our lexicon forever that you created. That's that's a it's pretty wild, really. I know, no, but no, I can't seem to step out. And I hear it all the time. And look, I'm happy about it, you know. I'm it's you know, it's kind of gratifying, but I kind of get asked how that feels so much that I start thinking that it should feel a lot better. (laughs) (laughs) Not necessarily better or worse. It's just surreal. I can't imagine. There's no, there's no right or wrong to it. It's just gotta be surreal. Just having a conversation with somebody with you, for example, we're just talking and I was like, you know, and yada, yada, yada. And then there's a moment where we both look at each other we haven't done that, but I'm just saying there's yeah. that moment where we look at each other and I'm like, oh, oh that's awkward. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's funny, you know, like I see people on TV say it and I don't even really acknowledge it. Hmm. It's interesting. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, or, I, or I acknowledge it like every other person might, you know, like, oh, he's a yada gada guy as opposed to a blah, blah, blah guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. It's very, it's, it, you know, it's, it's a very weird thing. Like I really haven't come to any kind of terms about how I, mm-hmm. <laughs> how, that, 
about that. And the funny thing is, I didn't even know I created about uh, the one about Get Out. I know. It, I guess I did, but you know, yeah. like as it was in the first episode. I know I wrote it, and but you know, like I didn't even. You know, that was the others. It was like most of them were like coming up with a term for something out of necessity. Mm. You know, like Spongeworthy comes, or you know, shrinkage. You know, those words didn't exist. Mm-mm. Those phrases are double dipping. And you had to come up with something kind of out of necessity. But, you know, get out was just like, I don't know. That's what, isn't that, I guess, Julia sold that more than I did. Oh, totally sold that. Yeah, she's fantastic. How lucky for you as a writer to have such an exceptional group of actors. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. They, they always made first first of all like 90% of the ways time where you had a thought of how a line should be read it wouldn't come out that way when they did it and then you'd be like oh my god that's actually much better <laughs> you know i mean especially you know julia and jason they came up with ways of saying things that you know like you never thought yeah, because Jerry wasn't really an actor, right? He no, no, yeah. But he got better. Was... He got a lot better at it. Oh, for sure, for sure. It's like Will Smith with the Fresh Prince. You know, you yeah. grow into yourself as you're going. Yeah. yeah. You know, like yeah. I think once Jerry, once the show was popular enough, and Jerry was freed up to be a bit of a prick, <laughs> that's when his acting really took off. Because, like, when the show is Seinfeld. At first, you don't. You're you're supposed. You immediately back then would think, well, I'm the sane center of the show. I can't be a bad guy. But um, I can point you to the exact moment when it became okay. Yeah. You know, know, Kramer was bugging Jerry to. This was in the Junior Mint episode when Kramer was bugging Jerry to go see to go view a surgery from Elaine's boy kind of overweight boyfriend and he's just bug come on jerry come on and jerry during a rehearsal he ad libs and says all right let me finish my coffee and we'll watch him slice this fat bastard up <laughs> he just said it to, he just did that ad libbed it in the middle of a rehearsal and the laugh was so huge i remember larry turning to me and said you think we can get away with that i said Larry, we can get away with anything. (laughs) For real. For real. (laughs) Yeah, once you do 22 minutes on masturbation and you and and (laughs) you can get away with anything. I only go about 15 myself. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that I mean, gosh, so many brilliant moments. So many. And what who are some of your favorite uh side characters, supporting characters? To write for well newman was always great oh, yeah. um jerry stiller as george's father and and you know anastelle harris as you know george's parents were fantastic to write yeah and all the parents were great to write yeah for, for sure yeah um nobody else super stands out you know just the re- mainly just the regulars you know like Newman and the parents, yeah, those like the main people. Yeah, what's so funny too is just like again the fact that these characters never evolve, but all the people and all the people around them, all the boyfriends and girlfriends and coworkers, they're all like, "You people are horrible." Yeah, <laughs> it's still, <laughs> and they they have no idea. It's so great. I mean, maybe they do know. I guess they do know, and they just don't care. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, the whole concept of likability was out the window. Yeah. I was thinking about this the other day when when I knew that we were going to talk. I thought, isn't it funny that we actively, millions and millions of people actively watched people screaming at each other and fighting nonstop. It's so fabulous. And yet the next, you know, like the next day, they're best of friends again. Yeah. 
Absolutely. You know, they were really good friends. I mean, they could screw each other over at the drop of a hat, but it didn't affect their relationship. Yeah. It was like, okay, well, you know, this we're in a game now. You know, nothing personal, but I'm going to, you know, completely ruin your day. Yeah. <laughs> well, tomorrow will be great. <laughs> I love that. Uh, do you, I know you probably get asked this all the time, but I've never asked you this. Do you have a favorite couple episodes? And did you write them, your favorite? No. Um, I would say my favorite, believe it or not, was one of the early episodes. It was called um, The Deal. When Jerry and Elaine tried to like negotiate a way they could remain friends and still have sex, I just thought like that negotiation, those scenes, and the ensuing scene with Jerry and George was like the greatest TV writing I'd ever seen. And that was before I was on staff. I mean, I was promised a job, you know, for the next season. So I was going to all the shows. But I was like sitting in there going, this is just the greatest thing in the world. And, um, you know, I love that one. Uh, you know, Larry did this. I, I'd say, you know, like I, it not not necessarily the whole episode, but certain story ideas, you know, like Larry had that idea of Jerry being caught making out during Schindler's List. Yeah. And, you know, like that is such a genius idea, you know, because you have the entire show in front of you right there because you think to yourself, okay, Jerry gets caught making out with his girlfriend during Schindler's List. Who's going to be offended by that? Well, his parents would be offended, but how are they going to find out? They can't be in the theater. It would be too coincidental. Somebody would have to drop a dime on him. Who would do that? Newman. You got a whole show. Boom, boom, boom. That used to happen to Larry all the time. It happened to me once, you know, with the sponge. I heard that the sponge was going out of business, and I thought to myself, God, if Elaine's a sponge user, she'd probably try to load up on them before they're all gone, and she'd only be able to get a limited number, so she'd have to change her entire screening process for who she sleeps with. Boom. That conversation between those two for that scene yeah. is so hilarious. Your bathroom's in order? Yes, yes. <laughs> Clean sheets? Yes. You're going to do something about those sideburns? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so good. Yeah. So funny. I can't even imagine the, the sheer level of brilliance happening in at mock speed, you know, all around. Must have been quite an experience. How do you come down from that when you leave? Well... When you leave the show entirely, I mean. You leave the show, and of course, you have a development deal with another, with a, to come up with new shows. I have, mine was with DreamWorks, and you pitch a new show, and it sells really fast. And after the table read of your pilot, the notes that you get from the network tell you one major thing. They tell you that they hated Seinfeld, that it broke all their rules, and they don't like that. Oh, they were fans of the show, but it broke all their rules. And, like, you know, they wanted my characters to be likable. And, you know, and, you know, back to where it was. And, um, I was like, why did you want to be in business with me if this is the kind of notes you're giving? Yeah, we love you. We love you. Now we want to change everything about you. So, I mean, you know, it was a bit of a jolt. But, you know, there really wasn't that much time to um, to make the transition because, you know, like after I left, I left before the final season. So um, I left. I was exhausted. You know, like, it was really exhausting. And um, I kind of realized that I was, you know, pretty tired. So I took it kind of easy that summer, even though I was already creating this pilot. And um, I had the table read for my pilot the morning after 
the filming of the last episode of Seinfeld. So I was on the Seinfeld set till like one in the morning and I just said to Larry and Jerry, you go, well, I got to go. I got a table read at 10 a.m. <laughs> and um, so there's really not much of a transition or time to, uh, you know, reflect mm -hmm. or anything yeah. like that. Which For is sure. good, you know. Now, how long were you writing your novels? No. That happened after the fact. Way after. Yeah. Way after. Hashtag, hashtag me as well. The, a novel. Was that the first one? Second. That was the second one. Okay. The first one was. Um, um, it, won't it won't always be, be this great. It won't always be this great. Right. And what brought you into writing novels? What was that impetus? Um, I. It's funny, I started writing a few things that were more fictional, and like some of them were getting published. I got, I wrote one about this guy who had absolute uh, kind of a short story about a guy who had absolutely no opinions on anything. Hmm. And then I wrote this other piece for Esquire about about Nelson Mandela's parole officer. <laughs> and then, you know, like I'm having dinner with my old friend from college who lives out here. So we're still, you know, best of friends and his parents were out here. And his mother was talking about this neighborhood in Long Island that had become, that was always very Jewish, but now it became like super orthodox. So like if you opened, if you opened up your store in town on a Saturday, the orthodox would freeze you out. And that just enraged me, you know, like people, foisting their views on everybody else including on your own on somebody else's livelihood they were just, so ahead of their time <laughs> yeah it, it i don't know but i was infuriated by it and somehow it gave me this idea of a novel about you know about somebody in that neighborhood mm-hmm I don't know. It just kind of took off by itself. You know, it's a great read. I have I've read two of your. I haven't read your Mandela short stories book, but um, I've read the other two. Hmm. They're great. Yeah, they're, I keep hoping that me as well is a TV show coming out. Um, the funny thing is, I had a Zoom call yesterday about um, it won't always be this great being a show. Oh, great. Yeah. I mean, it might actually happen, which would be like mind blowing. You know, it's been, things have been happening with it, with me, like not even paying any attention. I'm like, sure, go ahead. You know. Well, that's the way to do it, right? That's how the universe works. You have to let go. When you hold on to things too hard, they, they, they don't have room to happen. You know, the but funny thing is, it's like, you know, you write a lot, you write a novel, you know, you feel, and if it comes out okay, you know, like. I felt pretty good about it. Like, and now it's going to, it's, it's like, okay, you did this. Now let's convert it to a lower form of art. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, let's take out all the great, all the really good descriptions that you like and just make it dialogue. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> And your career as a stand-up comic came late in yeah. life. Yeah. What made you decide to start doing stand-up comedy? I I met I met a girl at a a party that I at a fundraiser that I didn't that I decided to go to at the last second for God knows what reason. And she was working there, and we would just started talking. And she told me she does stand up and she's got this show. I, and she was like, you should do it. You should try it. I, and I was like, okay. And, um, you know, because I had like one joke lying around that for years that I thought if I ever did stand up, it would be my opening joke. And so I did it. And I was, and you know, like if you have nothing at stake and, you know, I mean, it helps if you could write, but but if you have nothing at stake, stand up is a lot easier. Mm -hmm. I mean, if but if you know if your if your livelihood is depending on it, then it's hard. That makes sense. <laughs> you know, I mean, it. You, you know, the whole idea of just not being nervous on stage 
you know, I understand why, you know, 98% of people are incredibly nervous to get up there, but, you know, I wasn't because I didn't feel like I had anything to prove, you know, I yeah. was just, you know, and even, even the, you know, since I've been doing it, you know, four or five years or whatever, it's like a hobby. Mm-hmm. That does give you a lot more freedom. I think I've I think I've cleared about four hundred thirty dollars on my stand up career. Look at you! I hope you're investing it wisely. Yes, I am. Good. Yeah. You got to stop going to Seven Eleven for all the the bubble gum. I mean, you'll never ever save up enough if you keep doing that. Yeah, and and the lottery tickets. Ah, uh, yes. Well, the lottery tickets might return investment. You never know. You know, it's really funny. A friend of mine from New York, uh, somebody used to live out here. She's got this thing where like on on your birthday or like even on Valentine's Day, she likes to friend, send her friends lottery tickets. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. So I got this lottery ticket. I swear they're so complicated. I couldn't even figure out like what I was supposed to scratch or what was, what could, you know, I, 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 the instructions to that were harder than the instructions to my laptop. Yeah, some of them can be very hard. So you have to solve this Sudoku puzzle before you find out. Yeah. I mean, really, I, you know. I wonder if she has any kind of deal where if one of her friends wins, she gets half. I'm going to have to ask her. Might she be a contract in there somewhere. She would have liked her. She, was, she moved back to New York like 10 years ago, but she was really funny. Yeah. Just, we just got friendly because she used to eat at Blue Plate, you know, this coffee, this this lunch place that I basically used as my dining room as far as lunch was concerned it was such a fun place did you ever go there Uh is it not open anymore no it was on like 14th in montana probably before my time of getting here yeah Yeah. it was so much it was such a great little place like a tiny little place but always like crap you know like the tables were kind of packed in and the food was really good and you get like really fun people there and then you get like this weird assortment of celebrities you know like like sam rockwell would eat there all the time and i love sam rockwell he's probably uh, one of my one of my top favorite all-time actors he is so great Mm -hmm. he is great i mean Mm -hmm. how great was he in jojo rabbit oh phenomenal he's phenomenal in everything he does he's he's absolutely wonderful i just just on a whim, I, I watched a movie that I saw go across my, I think it was on Netflix or Amazon or something. It was Blue Iguana. And uh, it was fantastic. I don't know if I saw that. Yeah. It's a fun one. I just, I think he can make any movie delightful, honestly. Yeah. He's just that good. Oh, so-, so you're working on the new book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when is that coming out? I have no idea. Okay. I don't know when, if, or what. <laughs> oh, it'll, I'm sure it'll come out, but. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's it's like a really high concept thing, so. Yeah, people love that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, you know, like, I'm like 110 pages in, and I, I don't even know. I'm kind of fighting against losing the forest for the trees, but I don't mind it. <laughs> I'm just whatever it, you know, it's like takes me like 78 pages to realize something that I should be writing that I should have written about, like right at the top. And then I just go, oh, my God, I start a whole chapter by saying an embarrassingly delinquent thought. There you go. You know, and I just wrote this whole thing about how, you know, being an un being a childless woman is actually 10 times harder than being a childless man. You know, like your best friend gets pregnant, you know, you got to start like, you know, feel it. You got, you know, suddenly all of a sudden you're talking about amniocentesis, you know, all these things you have no experience over. And, you know, you got to feel the baby bump, you know, for guys, it's like, you don't have to do, Oh, your, your wife's pregnant. Oh, I didn't know you had it in you. So how about those Knicks? You know, I mean, expectations are i was once in a cab in san francisco or an uber or whatever i got in and pretty much right away the the guy asked me so do you have children and i said uh no sir he's like oh that must be very hard for you and i said on the contrary it's actually not hard at all it's quite easy and he said oh well but you're not really 
you know, you haven't really lived life until you had children. And I thought, I think I'm doing okay, but thank you. <laughs> it's just such a weird conversation now with a total stranger. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's amazing just, you know, how they need converts. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, you know, I'm not telling, I'm not telling, you know, friends with a wife and kids that, you know, like, I'm not saying, okay, you know, you should dump off your wife and kids and, you know, go to club med and, you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> I don't know. And it's so funny that, you know, the most conventional thing in the world, which is, you know, getting married and having kids, that's considered like true living. I just figure between Elon Musk and Nick Cannon, I don't need to have a kid because they've sort of covered, they're doing it for all of us. Oh, God. <laughs> they're having lots of babies, so I don't have to. <laughs> I can't believe I saw this thing about Elon Musk, you know, dissing Dr. Fauci. Oh, yeah. A man of science. I like know. Elon Musk dis dissing this great man of science. It's I, I can't even look at the news. It's gotten very weird out there. That is for sure. That's well, why, Peter, I, do you, that's do why you, I stay in. Yeah, exactly. Except for when we go to lunch and breakfast. Yes. Do you have uh, a place for people to find you, a website that is yours or on social? I know you're on Instagram. There is a PeterMelman.com. I, um, I don't really do much on it, but I think somebody else does. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I never check it. And, you know, I'm on Twitter. It's now a porn site. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> the only reason I know it's not is because I'm not, I would get much more response. <laughs> <laughs> the residuals would be nice. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I'm, a, I, I'm Peter Melman on Twitter and Facebook. and. Well, I'll put links for everything on heyhumanpodcast.com, including links to your books and, and so yeah. people can find it easily. And uh, I could give you my home address in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Did they really used to put your phone number on news articles that you wrote for no. people to contact you? Oh, okay. When you said that that you got a bunch of people reaching out <laughs> to you after that one article, I thought, my God, did they used to put? No, I was in the phone book. Oh, a phone and book. The, What's that? The, yeah, I was in the phone book and the article started with me walking up and saying that I was walking up East 63rd Street. And, there, and you know, like it was unbelievable. Wow. Have you ever had a stalker? No, well, I, you know, maybe my next door neighbor, but no. Have you? Uh, yeah, I have. But they were very gentle as far as one sent me a piece of chocolate cake in the mail because during a show I had, I had mentioned how good the chocolate cake looked. And then uh, about a week later, I received a slice of chocolate. I have no idea who sent it, but it's a weird thing to get in the mail. And then another time at a show, this is a musical show. Uh, some I can't remember if it was around Valentine's Day or not, but somebody sent me a big bouquet of flowers anonymously. It's a very gentle stuff, nothing threatening or yeah. weird. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Nobody turning up in the bushes or anything. Mm -mm -mm. No, I never got anyone masturbating, you know, in front of me from. Yeah. I mean, I have had that, but that was welcomed. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had it as a surprise. <laughs> I think you're totally stalkable. I don't understand it. Uh, it's very sweet, I think. <laughs> Peter, I love you. You're a delight. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. I love you too. And um, coffee. Yes, Breakfast. we will. Absolutely. Yeah. Give, give Ike a pat from me and a hug and a piece of bacon. <laughs> hey, you know, when we originally met, I asked you if you, uh, if you want, you said to me, if you ever need a dog sitter. I did. And you kind of looked at me like, is this person crazy? I had no idea who you were though. It's funny. Cause I, I turned around, you went into the, cause I was like, Oh, I'll watch your dog while you go in and get coffee. And I turned around and my two friends who are, you know, big television writers, their eyes were like saucers. They're like, you know him? I was like, no, who? <laughs> Because <laughs> I didn't know, you know, I only just moved, you know, whatever. And they're like, that's Peter Melman. Oh, my God. They were so fangirling you. It was great. Oh, God. <laughs>
That's crazy. Time may need you. Okay. Well, for, oh, for dog sitting? Yeah. Oh, sweet. Okay. If you're around. If you're around. I am around. Yes. We'll talk about this offline yeah. so people don't know when you're leaving town. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm such an idiot. That's uh, okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.